Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to this episode of New Books in Military History. I'm your host, Jessica Maloney, and with us today is Professor Brian Hayashi to talk about his new book, Asian American Spies, How Asian Americans Helped Win the Allied Victory. Brian, thank you for joining us today. And I, I did, I think, mess up your last name, and I apologize for that. I was rushing. Um, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. Um, so normally we start off, if you could just tell us a little bit about your background, your education, uh, maybe your, some of your other books that you might have written. Okay. Um, I was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Grew up there my whole life and then uh, went on for my PhD at uh, UCLA, got it there. And because the job market being as bad as it is, or still is, I should say, um, I wound up going to uh, Japan where I taught and had a fairly long career. But in between, I came back, but went to Yale University, became a professor there for a while, and then went back to uh, Japan again, and this time at Kyoto University, where I pretty much stayed. Uh, and that's where I spent uh, my education and, and my, my teaching career. As far as books are concerned, my first book came out of Stanford University Press, and I'd say of all the books, I'm the most proud of that because it became an instant rare book, as I like to say. Um, and so it it um, was about uh, three Protestant churches, and I analyzed them in terms of uh, Japanese American churches, and I analyzed them in terms of of how they, you know, t- how they viewed their life in America, what their faith meant, uh, what did the adoption of Christianity mean for a particular ethnic group. And so that was the first book. The second book I wrote on the the mass removal and internment of uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. And that was um, probably the most controversial book uh, that lots of people either liked or disliked, depending on you know where, where you stand on things. But it was a, a book that was really born out of... Um, my sort of personal connections with a lot of people, which um, growing up in a place like Gardena, California, I grew up surrounded by people who had were interned in, in those camps. My own father was one of those. And so I grew up with all these sort of inside stories that you will not see or read about in many of the books that you see coming out on, on that internment. And so I I wrote that, but before I wrote it, I asked uh, some of the the locals. I says, "Well, is it okay to start talking about some of these other the other dimension of that internment?" And then they said, "Yeah, it's about time to do that." And so that's why I wrote that particular book. So my third book here now is expanded, and it's gone on to look at uh, not just Japanese Americans, but Chinese Americans and Korean Americans as well. And of course, it involves espionage. <laughs> Great. So, so it was really more of a natural progression from writing your previous book to writing this particular uh, book. Yes. Yes, that is correct. Okay. So you begin the book with a prologue uh, where you introduce mm-hmm. these, these three men that worked for the OSS and the mm-hmm. idea that one or more of them might have been a double agent. Why did you decide to start the book this way? Yes, this is a rather unusual um, approach because, in fact, I was very surprised that Oxford University Press approved it. Um, But uh, it's for a couple of reasons. One, I would say, would be conceptual. I wanted the readership 
to really sort of confront that whole issue about, well, you know, can you really trust Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Japanese Americans? Can you really trust them? I mean, after all, their sort of uh, roots in America are very, very shallow. They're not very deep. They're, they, they, they've barely been here long enough, right? And so I took three good examples, I thought, uh, uh, that would sort of illustrate that, one of which was a Korean American who came over to the United States to study. Um, and of course, he was an immigrant. And then there was uh, the Chinese American who was actually born in New York City, um, but his parents went back to China and he lived uh, a good portion of his life in Shanghai, although he's, his family is more from southern China. And um, so I raised that question about uh, Chinese American. And then the third example, of course, was the Japanese American who was a student, left Tokyo, came to the United States, University of Denver, um, and then decided to, uh, he was attracted to, to joining the, the Communist Party of the United States of America. So he goes to New York City, meets Earl Browder. Earl Browder is impressed with him, sends him on to become what they call the underground uh, movement. And he gets training in Moscow. And then he slips back into the United States as a trained uh, intern, Communist International agent. And there he is on the West Coast, cranking out all kinds of uh, uh, communist uh, party literature for the Japan Communist Party. And uh, so I raised him as an example of, can you trust this person? Um, was, is he not, in fact, a double agent? Well, of course, uh, he goes on and says that once uh, Stalin and, you know, uh, made this non-aggression pact with Hitler, that kind of, you know, took the wind out of a lot of his uh, ideological sails. And then once the Communist Party uh, supported the mass removal and internment of the Japanese Americans, I mean, that really took it out of him because he was thrown into the uh, internment camps. And then he wound up becoming one of the biggest advocates of uh, draft right resistance, okay? So he just said, look, you know, I'm telling all these American borns they should refuse to join uh, to register themselves for the draft until the United States government first restores their their uh, civil rights. And of course, that went against the the whole grain of the Communist Party of the United States of America. And so you could see that the tension was was there, was the rift was growing. And according to um, Koide, uh, the the individual that I I cite, he claims that he just left. And so I wanted the readers to sort of look at that and say, wow, well, which one of these guys might be the, the double agent? So I, I put that because I wanted people to deal with that question of Asians. Can you trust them? Right. And then the second reason why I did that, of course, happens to do with my field. My field is was not espionage history, not intelligence studies. Um, I came out of the social history field and in the social history field, uh, we're oftentimes known for doing, uh, taking a climatic moment, putting it at right at the front of the book, and then peeling apart that climatic moment, uh, you know, layer by layer, and then uh, going through and analyzing it and presenting it. A good example of that was Paul Boyer and Stefan Nissenbaum's Salem Possessed, where they looked at the Salem witchcraft trials of the 17th century and said, now, where did this come from? Why did it happen? And they peel off layer by layer. 
but they start off their book with that that famous trial. See, so that was the the model that I had uh, uh, followed, and then of course the third reason was when I started to present things to audiences, I I found that the best way was to engage the audience by asking them, well, which one of the three do you think was the double agent? And audiences really like that. And so that's why I went with that. It certainly draws people in to, to want to continue reading the book to find out what happens, uh, which is always good for the, you know, for the author to make sure to keep the readers reading, right? Right. Uh, so the first chapter you, you discuss, you detail how the OSS was organized and how it recruited people. Uh, and you talk a little bit about the difference between the recruitment of European Americans and the recruitment of Asian Americans. Can you expand a little bit about, about those differences? Okay. Well, the first thing to, to bear in mind is, is what was the task of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services? Uh, and its first task was, first and foremost, was to centralize intelligence. Now, what do we mean by intelligence? Well, there's basically two types of intelligence. One is called strategic intelligence. That is to say, you want to find out what does your enemy and your allies as well, uh, what do they intend to do? What are they most likely to do? And then the second type of intelligence would be tactical operational. That is to say, what is your enemy or your allies? What are they capable of doing militarily? And where have they, in fact, deployed their forces? And so the, the problem with the collecting of intelligence or the intelligence prior to 1940 was that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt could see the problem right away. The State Department wanted strategic intelligence. The Army and Navy wanted tactical intelligence. And the problem was once war broke out, how are you going to get that kind of intelligence? All your embassies and consulates are going to be closed, so you can't get strategic intelligence from these various countries. And even military intelligence, which both the Army and the Navy collected, was oftentimes done by these what they call military attaches. Well, if, you, if these countries are at war, your military attaches are going to be one of the first sets of people that are going to be sent home. How do you collect this intelligence? Well. For the um, OSS, then they knew that if they're going to centralize and bring all this intelligence together, they have to have a system. And then where are they going to get that? I mean, who's the target countries? Well, they're obviously heavily Europe. And so what then happened was um, the, the director, William um, Donovan, had decided and made a very clear conscious choice. Well, if the first target is going to be Europe, then I need to get people who know Europe. And of course, when he's talking about strategic intelligence and tactical or operational, you know, I mean, he, William Donovan, being a World War I veteran, he was a Medal of Honor uh, recipient, okay? So if you know anything about a Medal of Honor recipient, like in the military, it doesn't matter what the rank of that person is. They could be a, a, a buck private, but if they have a Medal of Honor, everybody's supposed to salute them, okay? And that was William Donovan. He was a colonel, and he walks into the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they have to salute him because he's a Medal of Honor guy, okay? Um, but even though he had this sort of high status, 
he couldn't just walk in and get tactical and operational intelligence. In fact, the Army intelligence guy, Fed Director George V. Strong, who was called King George because he was so overbearing and tyrannical, um, refused to give uh, Donovan anything, you know, uh, or very little. The Navy was a little more cooperative, but again, they were limited by the fact that the British and the French intelligence services weren't going to give them the information about Europe. And they were effectively locked out in, in men, many of the theaters in Europe. So Donovan, when he first set up his, his uh, intelligence agency, he decided to go with strategic intelligence and targeting Europe in particular. Now, how do you get that information? Well, um, if the embassies and consulates are locked up, then you have to go to your libraries and figure things out. And that's exactly the direction that Donovan went. He went to the libraries, and better yet, he got people who knew the libraries. So he tapped uh, James Finney Baxter the third, <laughs> the president of Williams College at that time, his, his good buddy, and said, look, uh, Baxter, I want you to go recruit a bunch of people. Why? Because I need the strategic intelligence, and that's got to come out of these libraries and all these other books and records and things like that. Because after all, you can learn a lot more about what a country's uh, political leaders are going to do, intend to do, uh, by studying those things as opposed to trying to slip in a Matahari and, you know, seduce them and get this information. It's much more systematic to go this route. So he got uh, James uh, Baxter to do this. James Baxter, Baxter turned around and recruited all these other people in the academic world using his, what we call, the old boy connections. So his old boy connections led him, first and foremost, to a guy like William Langer, the, the German historian at Harvard University, history department. Uh, Langer wrote, in fact, the, the biographical profile for Hitler, psychological profile. Um, so that um, the OSS then went in that direction. But if you go in that direction, the, the old boys network, you're clearly going to miss a lot of people. And especially if your old boy network connections are where, where most of your colleges and universities are, in the United States, which is in the Northeast. But the Asians, Asian Americans, live heavily in the West, on the West Coast and in Hawaii. So you're not going to tap on to too many of them. But what then happens is, is when the OSS realizes that they want to get into not only strategic intelligence, but tactical and, op and operational intelligence, the only place they can operate, they couldn't even operate in the Pacific Ocean because MacArthur didn't want them there. Uh, Nimitz was more cooperative, but still, he kept them a little bit away. Uh, and so they couldn't really fully operate in the Pacific Theater. So they were only left with one theater, which was the China Theater, uh, or what they called back then China Burma India Theater, the CBI. And so, uh, in order to operate over there, and even if you're in China, you can pick up Japanese language materials. And so, he, uh, Donovan knew right away that he needed all of these people uh, to, who were linguistically qualified to be able to um, pull together, collect all that sort of uh, um, strategic intelligence type of materials. And so, of course, he got people like John King, King Fairbanks out of uh, Harvard. 
to pull together some of those materials, especially those out of China. But he also needed people who were Japan area specialists. He needed some more with Korea, a little bit with Korea, but not, not quite as much. And then, of course, um, Southeast Asia. And so in order to do that, then he had to start recruiting Asian Americans. Um, and then the second thing you're going to do is if you're going to do uh, tactical or operational intelligence, then you're going to need people with uh, that can slip in behind enemy lines to do some of this work. Or even at the, at the battlefront, uh, say, for example, you need to in interrogate a Japanese prisoner of war. Then you need somebody right there uh, who can speak the language. And if you want, and this is what they literally did in, in places like Burma, Myanmar, what they would do is they'd slip some of the Japanese Americans um, to pretend that they were officers and yell out commands in Japanese. Okay. And so in order to do that, you have to have something of what I call the correct racial slash ethnic uniform. And that's where the Asians came in. And so once the OSS realized that if they're going to make a name for themselves, if they're really going to get uh, carry out that function of centralized intelligence, they had to impress um, the, the army and the Navy, especially the army. And so what Donovan did was he placed the OSS right inside the War Department, directly in contact with those army Generals. He didn't run away from them. He went right straight at them and said, no, I'm going to be working for you. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt looked at, at Donovan and just said, boy, are you sure you want to do this? And Donovan, Donovan was betting that he could convince them. And he was right. Um, he, he was able to convince them that he could do a very good job. But again, how did he do that job? And it had a lot to do with recruiting Asian-Americans. And they also, um, from your book, it seemed that they also approached the recruitment of each of these different groups of Asian Americans differently between the Japanese, the Korean, and the Chinese. Definitely. Um, they had to approach it differently because of uh, not only was the background of the Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans different, but the particular goals that they were trying to, to uh, attain were a little bit different. So, for example... Take Korean Americans. Um, they were trying to recruit Korean Americans for what kind of task? Well, heavily was it was heavily special operations and secret intelligence. Why that? Why not morale operations, propaganda, uh, things like that, right? Or even research and, and analysis, more strategic intelligence, library work. Why didn't they do that? Well, it's because Korea was occupied by the Japanese authorities. And what many of the American um, government officials, high and low uh, throughout the government, all basically assume that the Koreans hated the Japanese and given uh, an opportunity would overthrow the Japanese. And so very early, even though Koreans were technically Japanese nationals at the beginning of the war, in 1942, the American government, I think it was October, they just very quickly declared that Koreans are are not Japanese nationals and therefore, you know, they're, they're, they're allies. And so um, it was a very different sort of situation for those Koreans. So 
There weren't a large number of Koreans, uh, but there was enough uh, in sufficient numbers to recruit. And of course, um, for the OSS, they didn't have to go very far to recruit. Why? Because it was the Sigmund Lee, who later becomes the first president of South Korea, um, came directly right up to the OSS and said, listen, I can get you people that you may want. And so the OSS took one look at Sigmund Rhee, realized he was the president of the Korean provisional government, and right there was their high-level connection that they figured they could get all kinds of good intelligence uh, materials from. And so the recruitment of Koreans then really was, was run through either Sigmund Rhee, the earliest group, or uh, later on, it becomes uh, Ilhan New, who I talk about in the book, and how he started to recruit people. And then basically, with the Koreans, it was they were put into two uh, insertion teams. One was called Eagle, and the other was called Napco. And I suspect that the Eagle was more of the the sort of the um, the image, or you know, the what I call the decoy. Um, and they were out there basically up front, all these people, the big famous, uh, Korean independence movement leaders were all associated with it. And that's where scholars usually focus on. And they think that that was what the OSS was, was doing was just that. Um, however, there was the other group called NAPCO, which did not get much attention. And many Korean scholars have very little knowledge about. Um, and that was run by Ilhan New, who is, um, was the founder of Yuhan Corporation, one of the large, large, large corporations in, in Korea today. And um, Ilhan New and his group, I argue, was really the real team that was going to be inserted in and conduct all of these um, spy operations, contacting the Korean underground movement, and then begin sabotage and slipping agents among the Korean laborers who were moving across the straits uh, into Japan to work in the war factories. And so the Koreans had this specific role to fill. The Japanese Americans, however, had a very different role because here the Japanese Americans, what they were looking at was on the one hand, they needed Japanese Americans to produce propaganda materials. Because the propaganda materials made by uh, the European Americans was not very good, okay? And they found them to be absolutely terrible. They even tried some of the propaganda materials on, on the very few uh, Japanese POWs that were brought in. And they say, what do you think of this? And then the Japanese POWs would take one look at it and they start laughing and, and scoffing at it because it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's when the morale operations, the propaganda groups said, well, we need uh, better propaganda. And by the way, we're going to have to take these Japanese Americans and they can't just simply translate the materials that we write. They're going to have to create the materials themselves. And so the Japanese Americans became the, the key group. The OSS became one of the key groups in writing those the, the propaganda materials. So they had that. Now, why did they write propaganda materials? Why did they write all these magazines and, and you know, all these articles and things like that? Even did uh, uh, radio broadcasts of, the, of that nature? Well, why? Because the Japanese population 
unlike the Chinese population, the Japanese population was highly literate. And so they have this function. So it's no surprise that when you look at the morale operations, uh, a large number of, uh, well, relatively large number of Japanese Americans were, were, were put in the morale operations segment and far fewer in the secret intelligence, uh, which they knew they were going to have trouble getting uh, agents in there. Okay. And so what happens is really not until the towards the end of the war, when the American bombing um, campaign just levels Japanese cities, breaks down some of the police control, that that's when and only when the OSS uh, secret intelligence group says, look, now that these uh, police controls have loosened, uh, we think we can recruit a lot more Japanese to spy for us. And what we're going to do is we're going to parachute in our Japanese Americans and they're going to run these spy rings, you know? And so a couple of the Japanese Americans are like, oh my God, you think we're going to survive more than five minutes, you know? And, and so some of them were really apprehensive about doing that, but others were like, okay, we'll do it. We'll probably lose our lives, but we'll do it. And so uh, there were a number of them that went in as well. But then that was very, very late. For Chinese Americans, again, it was different. Less literacy in China, so you're not going to recruit too many people for morale operations. And morale operations, propaganda, you're going to focus much more on the creation of cartoons and things that will be very, very simple and easy for a basically illiterate majority to be able to understand and get motivated to resist and or fight the Japanese. So instead, what they found was uh, more fruitful was to put Chinese Americans in specific areas. And secret intelligence was one of those areas. Because in China, the OSS found they could get a lot of intelligence materials if they have Chinese Americans who can speak, the language. Now, you got to remember in China, there's two languages, basic languages, okay? There's Cantonese and there's Mandarin. The Chinese Americans, for the most part, are from southern China, a specific region, and so it's Cantonese. But there are the, the Chinese nationalist government is heavily Mandarin speaking. And so you have to find, this presents a little bit of a, a difficulty, can you find somebody who speaks both? And that's pretty hard to do, but Lincoln Kong was one of those. And so, um, so I focused on him, but there are others, obviously, that they picked up. And, and so you saw Chinese Americans involved, especially in SI, uh, less so in MO, uh, morale operations, and then um, not quite as much with uh, special operations either, unlike the Korean Americans. And there's a reason for that. It's because the Chinese nationalist government refused to allow the OSS to engage in special operations or guerrilla warfare, even though the OSS was from the very beginning committed to conducting that kind of operation. And so that's where the differences in recruitment came. Um, some of it, you know, because they had uh, people ready to volunteer others for them, like the Korean Americans or the Japanese Americans because they wanted um, military uh, personnel. So they went straight into the uh, training camps, army training camps, 
and recruited 14 Japanese Americans right out of those camps from there because they felt that they had good training, they could understand what the Japanese Imperial Japanese soldier was was thinking, um, and could command their respect. And then with the Chinese Americans, much more of secret intelligence. So that's where you find all these sort of differences within the um, the level of recruiting when it comes to Asian Americans. Sounds like a lot of competing factors happening there. All right. <laughs> um, one part in the book I found interesting was this talk of the OSS as, uh, I think you called it a racially inclusive organization. Do you mm-hmm. think that that was partly due to uh, Donovan being, I guess, against discrimination? Or did it have to do more with the organization's need for people with the correct racial uniform? Or was it a little bit of both? I, I, I believe it was a combination of a number of factors. First, of course, is the wider societal context. Um, you'll see right in 1940, uh, the president has already established a Fair Employment Practices Commission. So you can see that civil rights is already starting to rear its head. Um, and then, of course, the newer uh, federal government agencies that I talk about, they go with getting rid of Jim Crow. Um, you know, the, uh, the sort of the irony of it all is the State Department should have been the most sensitive to how, how the Jim Crow laws were so problematic. Why? Because here you got all these uh, African countries with their ambassadors, and what are they doing? They're running into all this discrimination in Washington, D.C. So you would think the State Department would be at the forefront of changing those those racially discriminatory practices, but they weren't. They were one of the worst, okay? So what then explains um, the OSS? Well, partly it's because they, they can see the new context emerging. Civil rights is going to be the wave of the future. They can see it coming. They know that. Second, of course, when you have a boss like William Donovan, um, you know, you, you really have to um, uh, toe the line, so to speak or you can get booted out of the organization. And Donovan, uh, to his credit, um, took took a great deal of pride in that idea of creating a multiracial, multi-ethnic organization. And that was the, the keynote of his speech when he ended the OSS and terminated the organization. He just said, this is what we did. We were not like all these other organizations. We created something new and something different. Um, and so that was part of his, his, his approach. And of course, he hired uh, his chauffeur was an African-American and he made it a point when that when his chauffeur got into a little bit of a tiff with somebody who was discriminating against him. I mean, Donovan came down hard on that person. OK, um, Donovan hired two Chinese uh, Chinese Americans as cooks. And I don't think it was just because they could cook well. I had suspected all along that that Donovan did that because he was trying to keep an eye out for some of the Chinese spies that were associated with Dai Li, who was the head spy master in in nationalist China. Um, Dai Li claimed to have had uh, spies right there in Washington, D.C. And as far as we know, he he clearly had had, um, pretty good intelligence as to what the, the American military was capable of. I mean, he knew about the B-29 bomber uh, before they rolled out. 
He was, in fact, immediately after the end of the war, he was searching for the China, uh, for the Japanese scientists who were specialists in nuclear physics. He wanted to hire them to build the uh, China's first atomic bomb. He failed, but you know, but that's so he clearly had had some high level connections, and Donovan was was interested in that. Uh, and then the third reason I would say is because the people under Donovan were also very much that way. Um, and I cite Joseph Spencer. Why? Because Joseph Spencer, UCLA geography professor, he's tapping into Boazian anthropology, as were many of these people. Um, and they, they really dumped on the idea of race. Um, Spencer called it, even called it childish, you know, and he was just like, this is, this is so problematic for how we operate. And so Spencer and many of these other individuals said basically no. And then finally, of course, as she pointed out, uh, which is what I do too, is necessity. Necessity is the mother of invention. Um, and when you're trying to penetrate behind enemy lines, when you're trying to uh, collect materials, when you're trying to talk to Japanese soldiers, the few that do surrender, um, you need the right, the correct racial slash ethnic uniform. Another part that I found interesting in the book was when you talk about, um, I guess, a, a certain lack of attention given to female recruits. Um, not that they were completely absent in the OSS, but mm-hmm. I think at one point you mentioned that they definitely missed a lot of opportunity if they had, you know, if they had recruited more females, they might have, you know, been able to go at things in a different way. Yes, that is so true. I made I made a point of that because I wanted people to understand. Uh, usually, when you think of espionage or intelligence gathering, you think of males, and that's sort of unfortunate because. You know, if you go back and look historically in American history, like the Civil War, some of the most successful spies were were females. Okay, Uh, but then what happens after the Civil War is you start to see the so quote unquote professionalization of intelligence, and that meant in the United States that meant sending out military attaches. They're going to be men. Okay, and so the whole intelligence gathering operations and an analysis and all that sort of stuff started to, to fall heavily on the shoulder of males. But is that a good thing? I say no, because especially when you're dealing with strategic intelligence, there were all of these incredibly well-educated, super sharp um, females out there that they should have tapped onto. Even in India, they had some of the most brilliant um, uh, female scholars out there. I mean, Cora Du Bois, or however you pronounce her name, Du Bois, Du Bois, um, who later becomes a Harvard University anthropologist, just this brilliant, brilliant person. There she is sitting in India. She's analyzing all this stuff, and then what does she say? In uh, I think it was actually 40, 1944, I think it was when she wrote up in one of her reports. She foresaw the day when decolonization movements would spread throughout Southeast Asia and that wars, a liberation, are going to take place right there in Southeast Asia. I mean, she predicted basically the Vietnam War, the Korean War. I mean, she she was right there. She saw it before anybody else did. Um, And so they missed it. And then on the Asian-American side, there were a number of these women who um, 
could have served if they had simply been asked, but they were never asked. And, you know, one of the, the biggest gaffes, I think, that the OSS missed was here was a person, a Chinese American born in Oakland, California. Hardly anybody knows about her, but I, I found some of her stuff on uh, posted on the Internet, you know, her and her, her, her immediate family members. And her name is Pearl Chen. And, and Ms. Chen was the secretary for Song Meiling, Mrs. Chang Kai-shek. They could have had an important source right there inside the Chinese nationalist government, and they missed it. And then there were others that, that were, were there. Mia Sanlamia for the Japanese Americans. She was right there in New York City. And they missed her too. And I'm like, how did they miss her? Or, or uh, Kimura Yukiko. She was the uh, historian at the University of Hawaii. Why didn't they pick her up? You know, I mean, they had an office right there in, in Honolulu, uh, the research and analysis branch, you know. And, and so they were missing all of these people that they could have easily have tapped onto who were just, you know, really brilliant. Like the, one of the, the biggest complaints I have was, was uh, Tsuchiyama Tamiya. Um, and she was sitting there right in the camps in, in Poston. And she was just this brilliant, brilliant anthropologist. And she didn't get picked up. And I was like, I can't believe this. She did, she did her reports for the uh, Japanese evacuation and resettlement study uh, that was run out of Berkeley by uh, Dorothy Swain Thomas. But I mean, they didn't pick her up. And I was like, how could they miss all these people? And Donovan was known as to be very, very, um, um, how shall I put it, very proactive in terms of gender, but he didn't carry that thing through. And so there were all these brilliant females, European-American ones too, that were just sort of left on the side. And I was like, how can you miss this? You know, But they did because I think the intelligence agency uh, all the way up into through the 70s was so heavily male-dominated. And I think it, uh, the CIA didn't really get their wake-up call until the John Walker uh, spy wing was cracked and you know, Alder James and some of these others. And then who, who, were, who were the ones that cracked it? They were female agents, uh, CIA case officers that knew what they were doing. Um, and then we look at Zero Dark Thirty, right? Who found Osama bin Laden? <laughs> and again, it's Maya. It's a, it's a female. Um, and so the, the intelligence agency, I would argue, really, really missed it. And World War II, that was one of the dimensions that they missed. So they hit the racial slash ethnic side and I think they did pretty good with that, but they missed the gender side. I guess that's so, an, another one of the problems um, with the supposed old boy network, right? Yep, that's part of that problem. You know, they missed out on all these brilliant female scholars and, and individuals that they could have brought right into their, their service. So, so um, you sort of bring the action part of the book to a close with uh, when Japan, Japan surrenders and a lot mm -hmm. of these agents had to transition into investigating war crimes and interrogating soldiers. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this was a difficult transition for them? Um, I would say initially 
it was a tough transition. Why do I say that? Because when they first started investigating, uh, conducting their their uh, war crimes, what they had to do was it was called basically prisoner relief and war crimes investigations. And so they would fly into these different camps and you never knew, were the Japanese soldiers going to cooperate? Were they really going to surrender? Were they really going to lay down their arms? They didn't know. Um, In a couple instances, they were fired on. And the one instance that I, I... quote, uh, is, is Sergeant uh, Fumio Kido. He was from Hawaii. And Kido, I, you know, I talk about him because he's, his interview was so hilarious. He says, oh, you know, I'm not this hero. I was just in the right place at the right time, you know, and I'm just lucky and, you know, very, very humble sort of guy. Um, but what Kido didn't tell people was what, what really happened to him. When he landed in Manchuria to, to look for General uh, Wainwright, who was captured, of course, at, at um, uh, Corregidor, Bataan, and then thrown into uh, a POW camp in Manchuria, when Kido landed, the Japanese arrested that, that whole group, uh, the rescue group, and they started off with beating Kido uh, almost senseless. I mean, they just beat him, whacked him. And there he was. You know why? Because to them, he looked like a race traitor, right? Here's a Japanese American dressed as a sergeant in an American army uniform. And he just got beaten up, you know, and it was, it was really bad. But Kido never complained about that, never even mentioned it, but I found it. Okay. And I was just like, oh my God. Um, Sergeant Kido never complained about it. So it was rough at the beginning. But once the Japanese forces accepted the fact that they were supposed to surrender, they were ordered to surrender and cooperate with the American uh, authorities, then it became a little bit easier. And once they did, they were, of course, tasked with all kinds of things, one of which was collect the intelligence, look for any any stay behind Japanese. Um, and then they were also uh, had to investigate some Japanese Americans who were alleged collaborators, one Chinese American alleged collaborator. Um, there were none for Korean Americans, even though I know uh, there were a number of them that, that were clearly the case. But um, be that as it may, they, they did uh, conduct these investigations. And what I liked about the Asian Americans that did this was unlike their European-American counterparts, uh, they took context uh, clearly into uh, their consideration, particularly duress. Now, <clears throat> now, what do they mean by duress? Well, duress, like you could say, oh, I cooperated with the Japanese authorities because I was under duress. That is to say, they threatened my life. Well, the American courts at the time had defined duress as, you know, you had a gun held to your head, literally, okay? And people have to see that there was a gun held to your head. Well, the Japanese rarely um, held a gun to people's head. But they threatened them in, in other ways very, very clearly. I mean, you are not going to get away with these kinds of things. And in many of the cases, like one of the cases that I, that I talk about, 
Um, I mean, the guy was basically tortured. Okay. And what are you supposed to do if you're being tortured? You know, um, that's what's going to happen. And so that to me is duress. That clearly was what, what many of these uh, Asian American war crimes investigators defined as duress. And so they went out and uh, checked out these different individuals and then decided that they were not guilty. And I thought that was completely appropriate uh, in, in, what, in what they did. And uh, there was one, you know, Captain Frank Farrell, who really objected to, to all these Japanese Americans being uh, found not guilty and released. And he was, wrote this book, you know, I guess to um, resolve his conscience or whatever, you know, because he was so mad that they got away. Um, and so I looked at that, okay. But, you know, I sat there thinking, hey, look, if you're going to get mad about those kinds of things, how come you don't get mad about why um, one particular individual who an American, European-American, son of a dean of a college in Baltimore, who became known as the Lord Ha-Ha of the East, Asia, and he gave all these these many well-documented radio propaganda broadcasts for Germany and Japan. And when he was asked, well, why did you betray your own country, America? He simply said, we must all eat. He was never prosecuted. And then you look at, you know, Tokyo Rose, uh, Iva Toguri, and she gets thrown in the slammer off of some very, very iffy evidence uh, of her having performed these radio broadcasts. And, you know, so you just sort of look at that inequality. And I thought that the Asian American war crimes investigators had done the right thing. They considered the evidence. They weighed it against uh, what a definition of loyalty, uh, a reasonable definition of what loyalty should be. And the, the context under which they uh, these supposed collaborators operated under and then decided they're not guilty. And so I applaud them for, for doing that. So I don't think it was a difficult thing towards the end, but clearly at the beginning, that transition was difficult because they had to convince the Japanese uh, soldiers to put down their guns. Definitely. Um you also talk about the, uh, and you just mentioned it briefly there, the, the double standard between mm-hmm. suspected uh, spies, European-American spies, and suspected Asian-American spies. You mentioned a, a few uh, Americans or European-Americans that were either suspected of or actually accused and convicted of, of being spies for foreign powers after the war later on. Mm-hmm. Um but but during the war and immediately afterward, it does seem like the Asian American agents were the ones that were suspected more often of being spies, while the European Americans kind of skated by. Mainly, you know, it seemed to me because of the way they went about recruiting these people from this old boy network. They just assumed mm-hmm. that these these men, mostly men, because they were from you know they had all these important you know societal and maybe financial connections, they would not you know didn't occur to them that they would be spies. But a lot of them were. Mm. So I yes, there were there yeah um, there there were a number of them, not a large number, but what was interesting is a uh, quite a few of them had these these connections uh, high up in the uh, federal government, 
And so again, it was they operated on the the OSS and and many others operated on the assumption that if you had long established roots in this country, you know, you're 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 not likely to to want to sell that country out. And that that was the assumptions that many of them made. Of course, after World War II, the uh, counterintelligence officers realized that that was a mistake. So. You know, there is that. There is the, the other factor, of course, of uh, looking at Asians and saying, well, you know, they're, uh, and, and I like to use the term strangers, because that really, George Simmel's like concept of strangers. And so, they're, you know, Asians are pretty much sort of viewed in that sort of category of, of strangers. They're recent immigrants. They're, you know, they don't know much about America, and blah, blah, blah. And so, uh and because they have so little stake in America, then they're they're going to be quick to sell it out if to the highest bidder. That sort of idea, and so I tended to go against that in my book, and then to to really look at you know the the idea of loyalty and where does loyalty come from, uh, what does it require, you know things like that, and and I think it's really important for for the audience to understand that. There are different routes for loyalty. Um, so, for example, like in many European countries or many Asian countries, in fact, many countries of the world, uh, citizenship is defined through blood lineage. Okay, uh, the United States is, is deter- determined by you know uh, birth location, and so what happens then is if you have blood lineage as your definition of citizenship and citizenship along with citizenship comes this issue of loyalty, um, then your loyalty to that particular blood lineage is, is somewhat, you know, quote unquote, understandable in a certain sense, because after all, you're related to, to these people in, in some way, shape or form. Uh, that's where we call uh, the term is thick loyalty comes out. And, the Germans and the Japanese during World War II had that sort of thick loyalty, and it's no surprise that they would fight much harder uh, and even fight to the death when it comes to um, uh, the, the combat and that sort of engagement. I mean, so did, did many of the Russians, because they saw that, hey, look, we're fighting for our land, and the Germans are going to try to exterminate us. We're going to fight to the death, and so they would fight for fight to the death. And so you saw different groups where there where the blood lineage is assumed and there's this sort of background, then and that feeds to to citizenship and therefore loyalty, then there's some sort of connection for it. But in the United States, citizenship isn't determined by blood lineage, it's determined by birth and location. And then when you're talking about loyalty to the point of of serving and potentially dying, then you have to have an additional uh, exchange, so to speak. That's why American loyalty is considered, quote unquote, thin. It's much more ideological. You're loyal to the Constitution. Uh, but when you're loyal to the Constitution, that assumes then that there is some form of constitutional protection for you. And for many European Americans, that was literally true. Rule of law, right? Uh, the Constitution applies to you. Uh, if you get done in, you could, you know, keep appealing until you get right up to the Supreme Court and appeal based on the Constitution. But what about Asian Americans? They didn't have that. Japanese Americans were like the clear 
clearest example of how the Constitution didn't protect them. They were thrown into the internment camps, okay? I mean, you know, so there isn't this, this strong sense of, of protection. Chinese were, were, you know, driven out of places like Colorado, or Rock Springs, Colorado, all these different places, shot, killed. And, and again, it raises that old question, where's the constitutional protection for them? And so, so there you have this sort of difference. Um, and, and I think that plays out in, in how you understand uh, loyalty. Definitely. You talk a lot about loyalty in the book and, and you uh, spend mo- almost all of chapter seven talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. I think the, the interesting thing I found was the different definitions, you know, the, the way the government uh, came to define it specifically during the war and then mm-hmm. seemed to try to use that definition against people. But the uh, <laughs> specifically the Asian American agents had had sort of shifting and different loyalties depending upon their backgrounds and, and, you know, where they come from and, and their goals, you know, what they wanted mm-hmm. out of their right. service. Um, right. So it's not, it's not a fixed thing. Loyalty. Right. That is correct. It's loyalty is one of those things that you have to be very careful. Um, I looked at, of course I'm influenced by uh, um, Keller's book and how he talks about, loyalty being a very, very shifting kind of thing. You have to be very, very careful with it. And it's not just the simple, uh, well, you were born in the United States, so you owe loyalty to the United States, you know, even if it means your life. And I'm going like, uh, uh, no, I don't think so. I think you have to be very, very careful with that sort of level of definition. Um, but yeah, and so for, and, and you know, when all you have to do is just look at, say, for example, the British during World War II. Um, when the uh, secret intelligence service in in Asia and even the uh, special operations executive, which is the OSS um, counterpart to special operations, right? Uh, those two groups, you look at them like, well, where is their loyalty? Well, you, you could see for so many of them that were in those two organizations, their loyalty was to their own business companies. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the reason why they wanted Hong Kong restored. I mean, you know, they, they plotted like, oh, no, we're not giving Hong Kong back to the Chinese nationalists. We're going to keep it, you know? And they did everything in their powers to scheme and put all that sort of stuff together. And it's just like, wow. I mean, this is what you call loyalty to the Allied cause? And, in fact, the, uh, the American forces, both the... Um, the Navy and the Army doubted that the British forces would fight north of Hong Kong. <laughs> I mean, there's like, oh, you can't count on the Brits, man. Once they get to Hong Kong, uh, they're not going to do anything because their their loyalty is to their own economic interests. The almighty dollar, the, right? Yeah. And so it was just, you know, so you, you always have to be very, very careful about this issue of loyalty uh, because... And, and, and I understand, like, like if you're a, a war veteran and you see you make all these sacrifices, you eat that that terrible tasting, you know, meals, right? Those K rations or whatever they're called. Or now they're called meals ready to eat or something, you know, and, and you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're, you're the cold, you're hungry, uh, sleepless nights, uh, facing all this bombardment, bullets are flying all around you. You see some of your 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 colleagues just get blown in half and you get splattered with their blood and guts. And you're sitting there going like, 
what does all this stuff sort of mean? And then that's when you sort of idealize, well, what is loyalty? And so I can understand why many soldiers like Frank Farrell uh, in my book, he really starts to idealize uh, what loyalty is about. And it's per perfectly understandable, given how bad uh, uh, so much of the fighting that he saw in Guadalcanal. And then he, he went to Peleliu. And oh my God. And he was one of those that had to go into those caves, right? With a flashlight and a pistol and try to fight with the Jap. And, you know, it's just like, I can understand that. But the, the, the difference is, you know, as a scholar, you have to take a step back and look at that and say, okay, I understand those emotions and this and that. But you can't let those emotions determine what your understanding of loyalty is. And that's where, where I, I differ with, with some of these people. Right. So uh, you end the book, you uh, bring it back around again to these three men that we were introduced to at the beginning mm -hmm. and, and discussing whether or not one of them was a double agent. Now, we don't want to mm -hmm. give any spoilers away because obviously you want people to read the book. Um, yep. if, we, if we give it away now, then, you know, that loses the motivation. Um, but can you briefly discuss what might have been the motivations for one of these men to provide intel or support to a foreign power just in general? Okay. Okay. Well, double agents are, are often motivated by what we call um, money, ideology, compromise, or ego. The intelligence service people use the term mice. Money, ideology, compromise, or ego. Any combination of them. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, double agents can have, say, for example, motivated by money. They really, you know, they get hooked into something and there's like, Oh, they needed the money. And then um, smart intelligence uh, case officers will keep feeding them the money uh, to keep as a sort of hook and lure them farther and farther in. And then once they get so far in, they've got nowhere to go but to, to continue. OK, because once the other side finds out they got all this money from from their enemies, it's just like, oh, my God, you know, he, we'll, we'll execute that guy if we catch him. So money is oftentimes. Uh, one motivation. That was one of the reasons why I presented uh, Kong Sung Ria in the, the Korean American, because he was paid by the Japanese consulate to quote unquote spy on other Korean Americans. And so couldn't that have been a motive? And maybe they were slipping money into him on the side uh, so that once he got into Korea, then he could turn around and, and double cross uh, the NAPCO group. Possible. Okay. Now, another uh, motive, of course, is ideology. And that's where Joe Koida comes in. How do we know Joe Koida really gave up that, that the Communist Party ideology? Um, how do we know he wasn't just sort of pretending? Uh, and, and so, after all, somebody who does that kind of work like Joe Koida does, um, he could be making money doing something else. Why was he doing this sort of work? And so, uh, unless he's still motivated by that that leftist ideology, and certainly when he's in Heart Mountain, he see that ideology does seem to 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 shape his his outlook. And then when you look at some of the um, the uh, radio broadcast recordings that he did, they they took radio broadcasts, put them on these uh, uh, LPs, you know, these uh, records, right? And they shipped it over to Saipan, which had just been captured by the American forces, and then set up a radio station there. And then they played those records 
with all that uh, propaganda encouraging Japanese people to surrender. Well, how do you know Koida wasn't still operating under the leftist uh, ideology and that if and when Japan would capitulate, he would march right in there and try to bring in uh, a leftist government. That very much in the same way that Kim Il-sung did uh, in North Korea, where he just marched right in and, and brought that. So there's that possibility. And then there's also the idea of compromise. Now, what do I mean by compromise? Well, the enemy can grab you and then use something against you, either blackmail you or, in fact, threaten the safety and security of some of your family members. Well, that's why I brought up Lincoln Khan. Lincoln Khan's radio messages, something seemed to be amiss. He wasn't quite answering it the way he's supposed to answer it. So was he captured? And if you look at that region, um, Japanese counterintelligence was very, very strong in that region. And Japanese counterintelligence uh, depended upon a lot of graft. And they were, you know, they bought all these people. They bought that that pirate, uh, Kit Kung, that I talk about. Uh, they had all of these people watching and looking and, and checking them out. So could Lincoln Khan vote to the United States but once you're tortured, it's pretty hard to, uh, you know, maintain your, your, your loyalty. And then uh, for, for Lincoln, his, uh, his father passed away, but his mother was still in Shanghai. And Shanghai, of course, was occupied by the Japanese forces. So couldn't the Japanese have sort of kept his mom, dangled her in front of uh, Lincoln and say, we got you now. Uh, we want you to do this. So which one is it? It could be any one of those three uh, are possibilities. and But the only way to know for sure is if you read the book and find out. Exactly, exactly. Right, well, this uh, sounds like a very interesting book, Brian. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about it. Um, so we like to close out the interview by asking um, what you might be working on now, even though you just finished this one, or if you have anything planned for the future that our readers might be interested in. Uh, yes, I am working on a couple of, uh, well, I got about three projects I'm working on, um, two side ones. One of is on Carl Eifler, the American guerrilla leader that is in this book. I'll be writing a little bit about him. There'll be a couple of other Asian American um, espionage agents that I didn't discuss in the book uh, that I really would like to get into if I can get some of the materials. One is uh, Jack Jung, who was a Chinese-American. Um, incredible how he had such high, high-level connections with the, Ch the communist Chinese government. And in fact, in uh, 1970, the early 70s, he was one of the few Americans that was able to get into communist China and was obviously working with the Chinese communist uh, government at the time uh, backdoor negotiations. And so, um, yeah, this is, uh, that will be an interesting book to do along with his uh, friends, the, the Kim brothers, uh, with whom I'm in touch with. But those are side books. The, the heavy-duty book that I'm working on right now is The Yellow Peril. And I thought it was particularly appropriate that I do this given all the anti-Asian uh, violence that we're seeing today um, I thought that, yeah, that would be very, very interesting to do. And so I'm working on 
that particular book tracing the where this idea of the yellow peril came from and where did it go and so i am doing that working on that right now those sound uh, great and we look forward to uh waiting for them to come out in the future and again thank you for taking the time uh, to talk about your book with us today okay thank you